Welcome to the Heal Deal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leona Allen, and I'm here to help you achieve more freedom in your health and your life. I'm the founder of Freedom Health Systems, and I've been a licensed chiropractor and wellness coach for over two decades. I've helped men, women, and children transform their lives by removing the physical, chemical, and emotional barriers to natural healing. Every week, I'll be taking you on a journey, a journey where you will discover the real truth behind what it takes to heal your mind, body, and soul. Allow me to be your guide as you travel this road to renewed health and a new life. It's time to make a deal with yourself to heal yourself. Please keep in mind that this podcast is for educational purposes only and not to be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. With that said, let's begin. All right, everybody, welcome to the Heal Deal podcast. I am your host, Dr. Leona Allen, and I'm excited to share my guest with you today. So we have Mr. Dave, doctor, excuse me, Dr. David Wiss. He became a registered dietitian nutritionist, RDN, in 2013 and founded Nutrition and Recovery, a group practice of RDN specializing in treating eating disorders as well as substance abuse. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA by investigating links between adverse childhood experiences and mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Dr. Wiss's newest venture is his app, which was recently launched about two weeks ago, and we'll let him share a lot more about that later, but this app is called Wise Mind Nutrition. Wise My Nutrition delivers educational content using nutrition and lifestyle medicine to improve mental health outcomes. I am looking forward to having this conversation. We're going to talk about nutrition and mental health. Welcome, Dr. Wiss. I'm Thank so excited you. to have you here today. The Journey to Healing Food Shopping Guide is your resource to making healthier food choices next time you go to the grocery store. Grab your copy today at HealthyShoppingHabits.com. Healing starts in the kitchen. Begin your journey to healing today. Go to HealthyShoppingHabits.com. Once again, that's HealthyShoppingHabits.com. I'm so excited to chat with you. I love your energy, and I'm hoping we can build some energy together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I love personal stories. So you're doing some amazing things today. But what's your story about what got you here? Yeah, absolutely. I love to share my own little journey. I'm from Los Angeles, West LA. And um, in the in the 90s, I was in high school, 1999, uh, had my own little departure from the mainstream world. And I got involved in counterculture and rave culture and um, definitely had some health consequences as a result of it. Uh, I do come from a genetic legacy of alcoholism on my mom's side. So I think I was predisposed to some risk there. And yeah, I had some issues, some addiction issues and some mental health issues. When I was in college, I did my undergrad at USC and I really struggled. I wasn't sure if I was going to finish. Um, and I was looking for a new life, a new chapter. What am I going to do differently? And I had always known that nutrition was important for me. I think when I was uh, a child, I had some overeating issues, 
some sneaky eating, night eating issues. And I knew it was something that I wanted to address at some point in my life. And when I um, really had a chance to start my life over at age 24, I thought about like, what were all the things that I haven't really given any emphasis to? And I thought about nutrition and wellness and exercise as potentially transformative for me. If I'm honest, I got into it because of vanity reasons, right? I, I, I felt like I had pale skin. I didn't feel strong. I felt unhealthy and I wanted to see what the universe had in store for me, what kind of potential I had. And within a few months of just eating differently and getting sunlight and drinking water and starting to sleep and moving my body, I'm one of those people that had a rapid transformation in my mental health. It wasn't just like, oh, I was starting to look different. I actually felt different. My mood was different and people noticed it. So it was like almost like this nutrition field that I'm in, the path that I chose of mental health research. It kind of chose me. It was very clear that like I was an example of someone who had a profound experience with lifestyle medicine, nutrition particularly. There were so many foods that I had grown up just never eating. I had never like had a, 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 a lentil or a sprouted seed or anything of that nature, right? I, I just didn't think that it was an appropriate thing for me to do. And so intuitively, I knew I'm going to start eating all the things I've never eaten before and see what see what happens. And it was, it was profound. Um, and people said, wow, you look different. And my anxiety went away. And people started asking me for help before I was even qualified to help them. So it was like, yeah, let's, let's work out together. Let's go to the grocery store together. I'll show you some things that I bought. And so I started off as a personal trainer. And then I was able to go back to school and finish my undergrad. It was like very clear that this was the path for me. And I went to a, a graduate school program to become a registered dietitian. And I did a master's thesis called Nutrition and Substance Abuse, where I wanted to learn about how different substances can affect um, the body and the brain and how um, you know people in recovery tend to fare differently than others with respect to e eating behavior. And, and I learned a lot about food addiction and I learned a lot about disordered eating, and I learned a lot about neuroscience, and I just really used those skills to build a practice. And I built a practice, like I, you mentioned, nutrition and recovery, really started in 2013, where we started bringing uh, dietitian services to mental health settings. And it was brand new. People didn't really bridge the gap between physical and mental health. It was mm -hmm. an opportunity for people to think about things differently. Most people, when they think about nutrition, think about the same old stuff, right? Yeah. Calories, macros, <laughs> fitness, appearance, and like a lot of nutrition is plagued with these assumptions. And so early on in, in, in my career, I wanted to change the assumptions that people made about nutrition. Mm -hmm. What if we came in and talked about uh, the qualitative aspects of food? not just how much counting, right. but like the, 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 the food processing and the food groups and how they affect your hunger and your fullness and your reward centers. And I started teaching people about this stuff and it was all light bulb moments for people. And that's right. when I was like, this is awesome. I want to do this. I want to change the paradigm. I want to take nutrition to the next level. So it's not just basic stuff. Like let's get into the higher levels of nutrition. And this was right around the time when the gut microbiome research was really starting to explode and the evidence linking the gut to the brain started to become apparent. And it's yeah. like, clearly if the gut and the brain are talking to each other, 
what we eat directly affects the gut and the, the gut affects the brain. We've got some evidence here. Mm-hmm. So let's start talking about it. And um, yeah, I worked clinically for many years, uh, built a practice, had a lot of success working with patients and knew I wanted to do more. I had already published a few papers in some peer reviewed journals and knew that that called me. I like giving PowerPoint presentations. I like doing literature reviews. That's my thing. I did it like as a hobby. So I was like, I'm going for the PhD. And I got into UCLA, which is right close to where I live. And I studied public health, which was really big for me because I'm a clinician. I work one-on-one with people. And in public health, we don't really talk about people. We talk about groups, communities, right? Populations. And so it, it forced me into thinking more broadly and thinking about policy and um, you know, there's a, just a lot of injustices in the nutrition world, a lot of inequities and in, in food insecurity and access issues. And, and so I got to think about nutrition on a broader scale. My minor in health psychology helped me really sort of um, practice thinking from a biopsychosocial model, which is that, you know, I always think about what are some of the biological mechanisms and markers what are some of the psychological factors that are at play and how do we put it into a social context? So it was an awesome journey. I worked full time throughout the PhD program. And as soon as I was done, I knew that I wanted to make a difference in nutrition for mental health, which is where Wise My Nutrition was birthed, which is the app that I spent two and a half years working on, which recently came out. So it's a really exciting time for me. Um, and I'll just share one piece about the Wise My Nutrition foundation um, right now, perhaps we'll circle back to some of it, but it really stemmed from this observance. Uh, I, I, I observed that there was tension in the nutrition field, a lot of tension, a lot of unrest, a lot of angry people, a lot of people feeling marginalized. You know, there there's like, you know, diet culture and there's non-diet culture and there's people uh, fighting online about diets and stuff like that and about what diet's best and you shouldn't be on a diet and you should eat intuitively. And it just started to feel like a toxic place and it Mm -hmm. felt unsafe. And so I, my, 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 my deepest wish was to create a a nutrition lane, a a nutrition message that wouldn't be over-identified with any particular food philosophy. It wasn't married to a certain belief system. It was this place for people to embrace dialectical thinking and start yeah. thinking out of the box and saying like, this is true and this is true and this is true. And the, and, and then bring it all together to help people build their own nutritional identity rather than following some guru, right? I don't want people to follow me and eat the way I want to eat. I want to teach people how to be their own eaters, right? And yeah, oh, the app like is- that. Really- Nutritional identity. I like mm. that. Right on. <laughs> And one thing that was great, I could tell you're excited and very passionate about this. And what I find impressive is that you figured this out at such a young age. You know, that is incredible. Well, I (laughs) I look younger than I am. I say that the nutrition has something to do with it. You're looking at me like, wow, look at this baby boy. I'm 41. Okay. Okay. Because I eat well. All right. I take care of myself, but I have the baby face. But yeah. All right. I'm young, but that's I, still I'm, young. That's still, still young, young. But I'll tell you, 41 is not 33. They're very, very different. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. But that is incredible because a lot of people get into nutrition for a lot of those reasons that you mentioned. They think it's just diet, exercise, watching calories, weighing food. And when you said nutritional identity, I had to stop you because I was just like, that is that is a key word. I never thought of it that way because everybody tries to be paleo. Everybody tries to be keto. Everybody wants to be vegan. You know, everybody wants to fit in some kind of box. Right. But when I'm talking to my clients and if their name is Judy, I was like, we, we need to do the Judy program That's or right. Scott program or whatever who they are. So that's mm. why I got excited when you said that we got to figure out what works for them. We metabolize differently. Um, I'm in my fifties. So how I metabolize now is different than my metabolism in the twenties. My, my needs are different. Mm -hmm. So we just can't fit ourselves in this box because it might not work tomorrow. It's like a child. As soon as you, you know, get used to their certain patterns, they're going to change in a couple of weeks. So we can't get used to the latest fad that's out there. Mm -hmm. So we have to have that nutritional identity and have that healthy relationship with food. And that's why, you know, I want to get into the nutritional, the mindset, because I can't wait to just really get into the nitty gritty of all this and really, you know, connect nutrition with mental health. So how would you describe it? You know, I kind of shared a little bit of how I approach it, but we're interviewing you. So oh, <laughs> kind of share your description you. or how you explain nutrition and mental health and its yeah, connection. Absolutely. I want to start off by saying you look great for being in your 50s. So well, thank you. Doing some things right. <laughs> and I really love what you said about boxes, you know, boxes help people feel safe when you can have you know, a group or a tribe and you feel a part of something. So one of the things I noticed is that, you know, people are looking for social identity and sometimes find it through different ways of eating. And I think as you pointed out, what attracts someone in terms of a social identity might not actually be the best thing for their biology, right? right. So nutrition for mental health is uh, very layered and multifactorial. At the biological level, we're talking about nutrients, that support brain health, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's several, you know, vitamins and minerals. The most commonly known is the omega-3 fatty acids because it gets directly into cell membranes and affects neurotransmission. Uh, but there's a lot of other things, uh, cofactors, you know, magnesium that aren't maybe as directly uh, impacting in the brain. Maybe they have a role in a biochemical process that's related to the brain. Right. So you think about how nutrients um, are utilized by the brain. B vitamins are also very important. There's a lot of studies showing vitamin D with some depressive symptoms. So that's a biological lens. The other one is also biological in nature, which is the gut health. Right. I think mm -hmm. most people uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when you think about fiber and you think about gut health, they're thinking about just bowel movements. Right. And fecal volume and all of that. And that's a big part of the work that I do, but that's an oversimplification of what we're talking about when we talk about gut health, right? Now we know inflammatory cascades and the production of neurotransmitters, the vagus nerve, you know, the bi-directional communication networks that we're only barely scratching the surface on, right? Like I could list off some of the mechanisms, but I think we're going to learn a lot more about how these systems are cross-talking in a, in a web of interplay. Um, but the third one that is less biological in nature and more psychological is 
our cognitive processes around food, how we yeah. think about food, the language we use, uh, how we talk about our bodies. And I think that goes back to our earlier conversation about nutritional identities. I think a lot of people are susceptible to thinking about things in a certain way. I mean, it's it's influenced by socioeconomic status, culture. There's so many factors that influence our family, right? How we think about food. But I do think that if someone spends a lot of time, you know, in their head about body image or about food, that's also worthy of conversation in the mental health sphere, right? If someone thinks about food and body 75% of the day, that's a mental health problem that should be addressed, right? Why is that? Why is there so much food noise? Why is there so much body noise? And a lot of this wisdom comes from the world of eating disorders and disordered eating, which is a lot of the work that I do clinically thinking about, um, you know, someone's food environment growing up. Like, did they learn dieting from their parents, right? Like yeah. the timeline of their, you know, weight trajectory and the diets they've tried and how all of that's influenced their set of assumptions around food and the charge that people carry. A lot of times people come see me clinically and they're just very food negative because they've had a lot of bad experiences. They don't feel at home in their body. They've been traumatized by seeing nutritionists. They don't, they don't trust anyone. They think they need to eat so much less food. And so all food feels like an insult to their body and they're going through life in fight or flight, right? So nutrition for mental health is the biological processes, you know, nutrients, mm -hmm. gut brain, but it's also that real psychosocial contextual factors that I think a lot of people don't really um, give a lot of emphasis on. So I try to bring it all together in the nutrition for mental health conversation. Yeah, because people just think food is just a taste thing or a comfort thing. But what I think will help people is they got to understand what food does. And I love that you brought up, I was taking notes here, the nutritional support, how it supports the brain, the gut brain connection and the language and the relationship with the food. Because I like to say, we need to learn to eat to live, not live to eat and understanding what food does. Food has a purpose. But I think what people tend to do is they want to eat a food and and they think they have control over what that food does to the body <laughs> so and they you know you got to surrender to that that's not it's not going to work that way so once people understand wait it's deeper than the taste how it looks and whether it's going to make me lose weight or not it's really about what is this food going to do what is the biochemistry of this food how is it going to relate to me because the diet you eat is going to have a different response to what i eat have you ever been out with friends <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's eating all this stuff and it responds differently to different right. people That's and right. attitude is different like i'll say if i'm happy and i eat something bad okay if i'm happy and eat it bad and i have a good relationship with that bad food it responds differently than if i'm guilty or angry and eating that same food That's so right. i tell people all the time you can have the perfect diet but if you have the wrong attitude, the wrong relationship with that food, oh, I hate salad, I don't like water, rah, rah, it's gonna react differently. It's powerful, it's so powerful. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm always trying to emphasize the nuance of nutrition, right? Because, you know, the context matters. As you said, eating a cookie by yourself after a really rough day, when you didn't get a response to a text or email and you feel all alone is very different than eating a cookie 
in a park with your family on a beautiful mm-hmm. day when you guys are out walking and getting sunlight, right? It lands differently. Yeah. And people really like binary ways of thinking these days, right? Black, they just want to know, is the cookie good or bad? And it's like, the answer is almost always, it depends, right? Of course, <laughs> like it's probably, um, you know, n- not the best choice for a lot of people, but there might be a circumstance when it's a great choice for someone because it might add some joy or celebratory energy. And, you know, it always sort of depends. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the name of the app wise mind, it comes from dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, which is really trying to emphasize that the mind has, you know, logic functions in it. There's the logical mind, very rational and task oriented. And then there's an, e- an emotion mind, which is more kind of hot and mood dependent. And, and, the, and the wise mind brings it together. It's like at the intersection to be able to say like, it's not either this is true or this is true. It's that these are both true simultaneously. Dialectics is about uh, seemingly opposite truths being uh, being converging right at the same moment. And yeah. I think that that level of nuance is so important for nutrition. And so it's it's a way of thinking about health in terms of guiding principles rather than rules. People like rules. The mind likes rules. Okay. I, I, I do counseling with people. We can get deep and they just want to know like, is this yes or no? Should I, is this good or bad? Should I do this or not? Is this, they just want it really simplified. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you want to go viral on social media, just simplify it. Right. Like right. just say that this is bad and this is good. And this is what you stand for. That's what people are looking for. But those of us that have like some scientific inclination, right? We know that like, it's not that simple. There's always more context. And that's what makes nutrition, you know, fascinating. And also probably why it's so charged and controversial. Yeah. Because yeah, the body's so complex. You can't expect a simple solution for such a complex body where thousands of functions are happening at one time. That's we can't simplify it to just one food, you know, one product. So that is powerful. So that relationship is so important. I think once people understand that, I think that addiction or that attachment to food goes away. You know, it gets to a point where it doesn't really have to taste good. (laughs) It just has to work. It has to make me, I'm I'm into the feel good part of the food. What is it doing for my body? Right, right. It's powerful. So let's, I know there's a lot of, I, I gotta, we gotta address the emotional eaters because I have a lot of emotional eaters on lit that okay. listen to this program. Yep. So with your, you know, with your practice working with addiction and behavior, talk a little bit about the, uh, emotional eaters or the addictive eating. Yeah. I I'm, I'm glad you said both of those terms because there are people that r- really like the term emotional eating that hate the term food addiction, right? Because it, 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 I think yeah. some people think it carries a lot of stigma or, or you know, um, a lot of negative charge. Um, the research that we've done on food addiction and that I've looked at over the years does suggest that, you know, understanding the neurobiology of eating behavior does actually decrease the stigma around it as, as opposed to it being like this, Ooh, you're a food addict. It's more like, no, someone might, because of their lived experience, perhaps their exposure to stress, trauma, and adversity have more addiction like neurochemistry, which, you know, can really create differences in, in eating behavior. So, you know, when I think about emotional eating, 
I always like to remind myself and think about how that can go in a, a lot of different directions. I know that there are some people when they experience like stress, like really stressful life uh, circumstances, lose their appetite and don't feel hungry and just can't eat. And they end up losing weight during difficult times. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that under stress and, and, and poor sleep and all that have, you know, ravenous appetite. And I would say I probably fall under that category, uh, especially given my, my lived experience, but I've always thought that would be a really, like, that's a really fun way, maybe not fun, but an interesting way. It's a fun activity. If you do it in a room, like in a group who here loses their appetite <laughs> when you get stressed, who here gains it, right? There's usually it's like 60, 40, uh, depending on the population. Uh, but it is, it is a way that I would discern between people that are hedonic um, in nature versus people that might be less. So hedonic means uh, the pursuit of pleasure, right? Some mm -hmm. people's brains are more likely to turn to dopaminergic substances in the face of negative affect, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that I understand emotional eating is that once someone has done that enough times, whether it be stress, boredom, loneliness, the brain starts to assign a lot more value to the substances that make those emotions go away in the short term, right? So yeah. if an eight-year-old grows up and uh, you know is having their parents are going through a divorce and during that really rough year, every night at 10 o'clock, you know, some sort of snack or dessert, you know, would make them sleep better. Mm -hmm. As a survival mechanism, the brain, the ventral striatum is going to assign more salience to that experience. And it's going to make that food have more of a pull, right? Which is very much in line with addiction neuroscience theory. Someone could start wanting that food way more because the brain has sort of learned that it does something that promotes its own survival, right? Yeah. And so the wanting goes up over time. The person wants this food more and more. They don't actually like it that much more. It doesn't actually like taste that much better or or it just seems that way the pull for it's so strong it's like I try to remind people have you ever had such a strong pull for something you go get in the drive-thru and you kind of park and taste it it's really not as good as your mind made it up to be it's actually quite disappointing um, yeah <laughs> there's other times when it's amazing okay i'm not gonna say it's always disappointing there are other times where it's like exactly what you wanted and it's perfect and once again there's the nuance in the nutrition space it's so it's so hard to uh to be able to predict how, how all these factors are going to play out for people. But yeah, I tend to like the concept of addiction, like eating more than emotional eating mm -hmm. because it does sort of look at the neuroscience a little more. That's yeah. what addiction, uh, 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 you know, psychiatry and neuroscience try to do is to look at the pathways and to understand it on a more biological level. I think emotional eating comes more from the world of therapy and, you know, psychodynamic, you know, psychology, all, all, all great stuff. But I, I think it ignores some of the mechanistic stuff that food addiction focuses on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, if you're going to try to um, disentangle the link between an emotion and food, that's a lot of work that takes like deliberate effort for a long period of time. And I think that's where people get frustrated. You say like, if you've been emotionally eating, if you've been re reducing negative affect with food at 10 o'clock at night for 20 years, right? That pathway is pretty solid in your brain. It might take you a few years 
before that's like completely off the table and your brain no longer signals for that. And of course, you probably know people aren't looking for things that take a few years, right? People mm-hmm. want a quick fix. And I'm not saying people can't have a spiritual awakening, have a rapid transformation in their lives and go from being an emotional eater to like stopping one day. I've seen it happen. I've seen people make profound changes in their life and have this whole new world open up. But yeah, if 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 the pathways are there in the brain, uh, you're not going to get rid of them. You just got to focus on building new pathways and that could take some time. So I always mm-hmm. try to remind people if you're struggling with food, uh, overeating issues, you know, be patient, do the internal work, right? Hang out mm-hmm. for a bit, be optimistic, make positive predictions, trust that the universe is conspiring in your advantage rather than working against you. And like, right. you know, hang, you know, hang in there. Yeah. And I want to touch on that because they have to realize it's there, but a lot of it's been programming since childhood. Oh, you fell off your bike. Here's some ice cream. You go to a dentist, here's a lollipop, you yeah. know, you got, you know, so there's so much programming that when you're hurt, you get a treat, you get a dessert if you're good, if you behave. So it's been programmed since childhood. So we have to break that pattern because we don't even realize where it comes from sometimes. So that's really important. And then I find that when people are trying to get healthier and they think they have that, that bad connection with food, they first have to, um, lost my train of thought. Hold on one second. Oh my goodness. I left it. Hold on. Come back. Come back. So I was saying they have to first realize the connection, the programming. Ah, I just had it. I didn't want to interrupt. So <laughs> hold on. Give me time. a second. My the listeners conditioning, are used to the this. Conditioning from early on. Yeah. In the life, conditioning from about. early on. And then, um, when they want to break the cycle, Oh yeah. So when they want to move forward and do better, they're, they're great when they're feeling good and they're happy and, and everything is in alignment and it's a good day. But as soon as life gets in a way, then they go back to their old patterns. And I think that's one of the biggest things that interferes with people's progress. So first they got to become aware of that pattern and find healthier ways to deal with those issues. Mm-hmm. But some people feel like food is the only way to go. So I knew I'd get it back in my memory there. Always. <laughs> yeah, that was the main, one of the main findings from my master's thesis dissertation was that people that had a history of substance use disorder had more difficulty controlling their eating or their overeating when they were depressed, right? Mm-hmm. So like that negative emotion uh, really cued up the behavior, right? Um, and usually when people eat addictively or emotionally, they're eating ultra palatable, highly palatable, ultra processed foods, right? It's usually not carrots and hummus, right? It's usually something that's <laughs> right. super rewarding to the brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's this whole conversation about, you know, associations in the scientific literature showing up linking, you know, depression and ultra processed food consumption. And then it's like, well, does the ultra processed food lead to the depression or does the depression lead to the ultra processed food consumption? Mm -hmm. And it was associational for a few years. And finally, there's been a handful of uh, longitudinal studies that have showed that, yes, people that. Uh, eat a lot of ultra processed foods, have a stronger likelihood of developing depression later on in life. Mm-hmm. And then of course it creates this cycle, right? If some people are depressed and they eat more ultra processed foods, their body lives in a pro-inflammatory state. They have um, intestinal permeability. 
There could be some uh, permeability at the blood-brain barrier, inflammation crossing into the brain. The immune system is working really hard to figure it all out. And there are inflammatory phenotypes of depression. And, you know, the healthcare system is not recognizing this, you know, mm -hmm. yet. But this is where the nutrition for mental health conversation gets really important. You know, there's seven randomized mm -hmm. controlled trials to show that, you know, whole food eating patterns, Mediterranean style eating patterns can improve depressive symptoms um, statistically significant, right? Seven out of seven studies show it. So yeah, yeah, I was obsessed with trying to use nutrition to improve addiction outcomes. That was like, you know, cause it helped me, right? It was, I was doing a little me search. I was like, you know, the nutrition saved my life and I've seen it help a lot of people who mm -hmm. are in recovery that, that get well from alcohol and other drugs. But the scientific literature shows that it's not that the nutrition directly would help the addiction, but the nutrition helps the depression and it helps the anxiety. Yeah. And right. When you help the depression, you help the anxiety. Guess what? You're able to improve the emotional eating. You're able right. to be motivated to get outside or get moving and get better sleep. And it creates a synergy, right. Of all these different lifestyle factors that, takes some time, but is worthwhile for people that are wondering, you know, is my, could my mental health be better? Is there something yeah. I could do to improve my mental health? And, you know, can I give nutrition a try? And I'll, I'll add one more piece to that. I, I found that a lot of people that diet for, you know, for like, you know, low calorie, the classic mm -hmm. approach for, for weight loss. If people are doing that for weight loss, it's harder to sustain it. Then if you're saying, I'm going to be doing this for my mood and for my depression and for my quality of life, because with the weight loss thing, you can easily be disappointed, right? If, if the numbers the don't look good, move. <laughs> things aren't happening the way you want it to, you know, you get frustrated and you're weighing yourself all the time and it's a trap. But if you start eating food for mood and brain health, and you remember, I'm doing this to optimize my gut function, to, to decrease my inflammatory uh, load and to improve my uh, cognitive function, it's like, you, it's kind of like, no, you're, you're in it for the long haul now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know? To get healthy. The point That's is it. to get healthy. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Cause well, I have a personal story about depression, getting back to that real quick. I used to be, I used to deal with chronic depression. Okay. And I remember when I began my journey about 10 years ago, I had lost 80 pounds and I was also, you know, I had other pre-diabetes, but I was also dealing with that depression. So I loved burritos back then, okay? So every now and then I'd be like, I want a burrito. But I didn't know at the time that when I ate that burrito, I got depressed. Mm. So then I started my weight loss journey and I was like, well, you know, I shouldn't eat this flour or whatever. Let me just leave it alone. And, and then I had been good for a while. And I was like, you know, what? I haven't had a burrito. I'm going to have a burrito. That depression came back. Wow. And I was like, aha. So a lot of people don't even realize that connection. They're, they're getting on meds for depression and going exactly. through all this stuff. It might be the burrito, whatever food you eat. Cause a lot of people don't realize this ultra processed food. A lot of those chemicals um, have um, addictive qualities in them. So they can't alter your mood. They're neurotoxins, but I want people to understand, Hey, if you're feeling depressed, it might be that burrito, that bag of chips, something that's in that food that is bringing you down. So people I just wanted to bring that up. Connecting the dots, but I think yeah. I think people are starting to. There's more people like us having these conversations. It's in the peer-reviewed literature, right? It's just mm -hmm. like does the 
does the peer reviewed literature make it to the Washington Post and to like the news, right? Like that's the gap, right? <laughs> right. The, the translation from the actual laboratory to like the general public. But it is super exciting to to just know that more and more people are are becoming aware of it at least. Um, but you're you're right. There's a lot of components to contemporary food that have like pretty good evidence to show that they have negative effects on the brain. And I think when you talked about the burrito, I thought about the big flour tortilla, right? Um, uh, I saw a systematic review and meta-analysis the other day about glyphosate, which is, you know, Roundup, the major pesticide used to grow most conventional wheat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the conclusions were that, yes, across humans, uh, uh, fish and other land animals, glyphosate is a neurotoxin, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and here's where it gets good, like, or at least, you know, a little tricky is like, if someone's going to start freaking out about white flour, that's also not good for their mental health. You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like, this is where it gets really, you know, tricky, you know, on one hand, okay. The glyphosate that's in a lot of food is not helpful for mental health. Being like obsessed with ingredient lists and reading things all day long and not wanting to eat with your friends and family that's not good for mental health either, right? So it's like, how do we bring together the needs of the biological needs and the social needs and like make it feel attainable and sustainable for people? Right, yeah, because people need to understand. That's why I'm glad we're having this conversa conversation because glyphosate destroys the gut, causes leaky gut. You know, everybody heard about leaky gut, but they don't really understand what leaky gut is. And there's a connection between leaky gut and leaky brain, mm -hmm. which where you get the mood disorders. Mm -hmm. And then that it's, it's just a cycle that repeats itself. So, and people don't understand, they don't, they just don't get it. So we think people get it because we live right. and breathe this stuff. We study yeah. it, yeah. but then we got to remember a lot of people don't really understand. They just think food is food and they trust what's in the stores and all that good stuff. So, and I think even a lot of people who do get it, it's like, it's just like that particular food, conventional wheat is like a, you know, United States government mm -hmm. subsidized crop. It's like, it's everywhere. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, if you go to a, a, a banquet or a luncheon, like you, you can bet that there's going to be wheat there. Like that is the food that is like a staple in our thing. So I know that there's a lot of people who might even get it, but it's just, it's exhausting. It feels like too much to try to do all that. What are you gonna do? Like bring a thing in a container, eat in your car, like <laughs> That's how people can develop eating disorders and orthorexia. Even myself, like I know about environmental exposures, you know, um, you know, getting the best water and the the right kind of deodorant. And mm -hmm. I'm pretty well versed, you know, I'm a, I'm a healthcare professional, but like, it's too much. I can't do all of it. You know what I mean? I need a good smelling deodorant sometimes too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, finding that balance between like, taking agency over your health and also like fitting in with the rest of the world is, yeah. is, is tricky, but yeah, the rest of the world, um, isn't set up for success, you know? 
Yeah, and the world doesn't make it easy to be healthy either. There's a lot of money in being sick and tired. So, but I think what people need to understand, because it gets overwhelming because people think they have to be perfect, very all or none. But it's really about just starting to make some better decisions and making a lifestyle, because after a while, you'll get addicted to feeling good. And you couldn't pay me to eat the stuff I used to eat because I love feeling good. I was like, I'm afraid of that depression again. I'm afraid of that headache. I don't want it. I don't want it. I want to feel good, you know? So I think people need to understand that. So before we close, what are some, you kind of, I think you did cover it briefly. You went through it quick, quickly, but just to kind of have it all in one place. What are some, your favorite strategies that you've worked with clients, you know, some tips that you can share with people that may be struggling with the, uh, what, what do we call it? What's a great way to say it with unable to break yeah. these habits? What do you yeah. think is a good, some good techniques for people to just kind of break this cycle they're on? Absolutely. I, I have found that, you know, those really simplistic approaches of like having a doctor, like give someone a meal plan. Like, I don't believe that that stuff usually works for, for most people. There's some people that are like super motivated. Doctor told me to do the Mediterranean diet and they Googled it and they do all this. But most people are going to be very far from, you know, what would be optimal compared to where they are. And so in nutrition counseling, and I don't think people can do it on their own. That's why like, it's not uncommon for me to meet with someone once a week for four months or something like that, if they can afford that type of a service. Um, but to make the changes very small over time feels way more yeah. like a recipe for, for success rather than trying to go from A to Z, just go from A to B, B to C. Right. And if that means like in the beginning, if like, you're not someone who enjoys the taste of a salad at all, and it, it's hard for you to even think about eating one, like it might be worthwhile to crunch up a bag of Doritos and pour it on that at first, you know? And to really start making very small changes that build over time. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we think about nutrition, we have to think about sleep, right? And supplements and sunlight. And so, yeah, I think it's wise to like look at all the dimensions of wellness and, you know, the different dimensions of lifestyle medicine and think about, you know, other facets of health and think about like, what are, what can I do this week? You know, what's the one change that I want to make this week? And then the following week, you know, do another and just start building momentum. Cause that way it's hard to feel like you failed mm -hmm. just doing something, you know? And so I built an app that helps people with this process and it's, it's free. There's a free food log in there where people can set some intentions. Like, what do you want to work on? You know, sleep, sunlight, and then start logging their food in a non-math centric way. So it's not a calorie or fitness app that a lot of people are used to. It's more of a qualitative process. So you might identify like what food groups were there? How hungry was I? How full was I? What were some of my thoughts, behaviors, feelings, et cetera? And then you can start to see patterns like what food groups are overrepresented in the in, in your mm -hmm. life and which are underrepresented. Like if you see every like I get I have grains four times a day and they're mostly wheat and I barely eat any fruits or vegetables, right? Like it's very clear what might be the next step, right? How do I bring things that are too high down? How do I bring things that are lower, non-existent up and try to have like a very balanced way of eating across all the different food groups and all the different colors? You know, I'm big on variety. I sometimes I tell someone like, okay, you're eating 12 foods, you know, like, can we get that to 20? 
you know, with a goal of getting it up to 30. Some people like to eat the same foods over and over again, but from an emotional eating and food addiction lens, if you eat the same foods over and over again, your brain gets less dopamine from them. And then people are more likely to have that binge behavior. Like something is just way more compelling because they're just eating the same food. So building in a lot more nutritional diversity is critical. You know, getting closer to 30 grams of fiber per day is critical. And then a big part of what I like to do, especially with people that have, you know, life challenges, depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, et cetera, is to think about, you know, timing, like sleep, wake cycles, meal timing. What, what days do you go to the grocery store? I think ordering food is great. Some people get their stuff ordered and there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes when I can get someone to see the value of like going to a farmer's market, going to a grocery store, putting it on their calendar, going twice a week, starting to cook their own meals at home and starting to connect to food more on a deeper level, I have found that it often does heal some of the ruptured relationships with food that people have. Yeah. Being willing to do things that are different because it's yeah. like my favorite quote, can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. If you want to yeah. be healthy, you got to have healthy habits That's and right. take actions that support those healthy habits. But a lot of people want their cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. And and it is a process. It takes time. I tell people it's no quick fix. There's no magic bullet uh, not bullet. <laughs> well, I guess I can say bullet, but I guess that's the same, but magic pill, potion, mm -hmm. lotion, there's right. no magic to it. Instead of trying to lose a hundred pounds overnight, lose one pound a hundred times, <laughs> you know, just, you know, take it in small steps. Cause if you say, Oh, I want to lose a hundred pounds and you only lose 25, people get frustrated and quit. I'm that's like, you right. lost 25 pounds. You got 75 to go. So that's it's right. really about that mindset and continuing the process until you get there. And just right. learn along the way, try things new. So sometimes what it takes to lose the first 25 pounds is going to be different than the second 25 pounds. And then there's layers that unravel. You start to realize what works and what doesn't. It's mm -hmm. a learning experience. Again, it's that nutritional identity. It's that mm -hmm. relationship with food. So work on that and what food does and how you feel. And that's really what worked for me and a lot of people that I've worked with as well. And it looks like that's how you approach it. So I love it. This Absolutely. is a great conversation. We're on the same page. <laughs> yes, I love it. So any closing comments um, you want? Oh, before we do that, just for the listeners, know that all this information is going to be in the show notes, information about the app. Uh, where you can find them. I, you know, I got your links to Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, all that. So I'll be sure to get that in the show notes for listeners that want to connect with you. But before we close, any closing comments? Yeah, I'm just really excited about this new um, revolution that we're calling Nutrition for Mental Health. You might hear terms like nutritional psychology, nutritional psychiatry, holistic psychiatry, a lot of different professionals are starting to move in on this conversation. And I, and I think it's really important. Obviously, I'm biased because it's a part of my own personal story, but I'm seeing such good results when people start thinking about food a little bit differently and start using food to improve mental health rather than just only focusing on that one other outcome. Mm -hmm. There's other outcomes of interest that nutrition has value for. So uh, in addition to the food log in the Wise Mind Nutrition app, there's a program and it's personalized based on someone's mental health score. So depression, anxiety, ADHD, once you uh, take some of the screening tools, 
You can get some targeted messaging along with, you know, videos, recipes, assignments. There's a digital workbook where you can basically create your own plan. And over time, you can see how the nutrition and the efforts that you've put in can improve some of those symptoms of disordered eating and trauma, et cetera. And I think that's the biggest part of the app that I really can't wait to like share with the world is when people actually see that this anti-inflammatory way of eating has decreased my depressive symptoms over the last two months, they start to believe it and they build it into their mindset. Now you have a new uh, uh, framework for eating. I'm eating for this. People are way more motivated and uh, the conversation continues. So, you know, spread the news. Nutrition uh, is more than vanity. It also has to do with sanity and wholeness, you know, Mm -hmm. deep down where we live and uh, join the revolution. Yes, join the revolution, everybody. And one thing about addiction, you know, I was listening to you and I'm thinking about our relationship with words and we were talking about addiction. And I was thinking, you know, sometimes you got to rephrase addiction, get addicted to feeling good, <laughs> get addicted to the life you can have. I so, love it when you, said you know, that. it can be, yeah. So, and then the emotional eating, you know, just make sure you're feeding happiness, feeding joy, yeah. and then your body will follow. And if you are in a state, instead of going to the food to make you feel more depressed or more anxious, start to really do some soul searching and kind of see what those triggers are and start to find new, healthier ways to evolve. So this is a great conversation, one that really needed to be had. I'm so happy I had you on the show. And uh, for those who are listening, I would love to hear your comments and let me know what you thought of this episode. But uh, thank you once again, Dr. Wiss. This was an awesome, awesome interview. Can't wait to hear what my listeners think of you. I know they're going to love it. And thank you for listening, everybody. And until next time, go out there and achieve more freedom in your health and your life. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, seal the deal to heal by leaving a review, subscribing to the podcast, and sharing with a friend. Thanks again, and we'll continue the journey next week.